Today we're going to be in John chapter 1. And the last time we finished up with the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus, and today we're going to start the Gospel of John. And there's going to be a lot of information today. You are going to be uh, taught why you believe what you believe. You're going to be taught why you believe the deity of Christ and why that's so important. Uh, so I'm going to hit this from a lot of angles. I'm going to use some Greek. I'm going to use, uh, you know, I'm going to do an overview at first. And uh, really, to, to, we don't have blind faith. Our faith is based on, uh, you know, God is, the, Jesus is the Lagos. And one of the uh, expressions or one of the semantic range uh, synonyms for Lagos is reasoning. Or, or logic, and we get the word logic from Lagos, but we'll, we'll look into that. But I want to start with an overview and kind of give you a background of this gospel, who wrote it, why it was written, where it was written, and things to that nature. So to start with who? Well, the disciple John wrote the gospel of John. It's not a trick question. Uh, the Hebrew for John is Yohanan, which literally means Yahweh has been gracious. And Yahweh was the name when Moses asked him in Exodus 3, who are you, God? And he says, he says, yud He vav He in the Hebrew, which basically means I'm the eternally existent one. I've existed from eternity past. I'm going to exist from eternity forward. So he didn't give, give a name like Bob or John. He gave a name that was loaded. Moses, I'm the eternally existent one. So yud He vav He, we take it and we put it together and we... If you put some vowels in there, we say Yahweh, or that's how we pronounce it. So God has been gracious. Uh, this is the disciple, John, who had a brother, James. And with those two brothers and Peter, Jesus would take them to privileged events, such as the transfiguration. So they had the 12 disciples, but uh, Peter, James, and John would, be, would see privileged things that the other ones didn't get to see. And we've talked about that. Now, John seems kind of low-key. But he's a faithful disciple. We know he was at the crucifixion when a lot of the other disciples or all the other disciples fled out of fear. Uh, he became one of the pillars of the early church after the resurrection of Christ and seems to have been the only disciple to have died or apostle of old age. Yes, he was persecuted, but no, he wasn't martyred. When was this written? Well, anywhere between A.D. 60 through A.D. 90. Now, a lot of these epistles, letters, gospels, we can really narrow it down to one or two years. This one, some have strong opinions of why it was written before the fall of Jerusalem, and others have strong opinions of why it was written after the fall of Jerusalem, but it doesn't really change anything. It doesn't really matter. What matters is why it was written and what he wrote, as we'll see. John also wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. Uh, probably why the Lord kept him alive so long and protected him from dying is because somebody had to write Revelation. <laughs> so John was, was it. And you can see a lot of um, connections between all of his written works. Three, why was it written? Well, to focus on Jesus as fully God. Now, if you look at the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that it focuses on Jesus as fully God and fully man. But here, there's really an emphasis on Jesus or the deity of Christ and why it's so important. Uh, there's several I am statements that he makes. In the Greek, it's ego eimi. Ego eimi is an equivalent to uh, what God says in the Old Testament, the Hebrew equivalent. So Jesus says, I am. And that's very powerful because only God said, I am. Right? That equivalency that we'll look at as well. 90% of John is unique to itself compared to the synoptic gospels who have, who have a lot of crossover between them. 
uh, the audience, everyone, the Jew and the Gentile, recognize your God, uh, the one who came to save us all from our sins. And if you're here today, maybe for the first time, and you haven't been exposed to the scripture like this as we go through reading it, there's a reason for it. As I was putting my message together, I felt led to say this strongly, that God is trying to reach you. All right? His word is powerful. He loves you. He sent his son to die for your sins, all of those sins, no matter what you did. So if you're here for the first time and you're going to get this, I think it's going to, you're going to, there's going to be a lot of thought, very thought-provoking today. Where did John write? Probably from Ephesus. So we're going to jump in. I'm going to start with, try to follow me, some of the more meat of the word, and then I'm going to bring more of the application after the first two verses. So, uh, starting with chapter 1, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So, Jesus is the Word. For those of you who don't know, the Word is capitalized because contextually the disciple John is speaking about Jesus as the Word. Or in the Greek, the Word is the Lagos. Now, again, some synonyms in the semantic range. Number one, Word could mean something said, could mean topic. It could mean reasoning or logic. Again, we get the English word logic from that Greek word Lagos. Why? Because everything God says makes sense. When we can't make sense of our lives and we try to use our own wisdom or wisdom sometimes from our friends and things don't work well, and we go into the Bible and we follow what he says, you, you have to stop. I mean, I'm a thinking person. I love science. And I say, well, that makes perfect sense. It's logical. He's the Lagos. That's where it comes from. It could mean computation or also divine expression. So Jesus, in a nutshell, is God's mouthpiece. You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're in unity, and Jesus came as his mouthpiece. Was it Philip that said, Jesus, show us the Father, it'll be sufficient? And he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Can any of us say that? Those words wouldn't come out of my mouth for fear of a lightning bolt. Um, But Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you read his words, you understand the mind of God. And that's the beautiful thing about what we're going to cover in this book. And I'm really excited about it. Trying to contain my excitement because I don't want it to be all emotion driven, but you know, that's where I'm going with this. So John is telling us that Christ has always been God. See, we think he started as the babe in the manger. He's always existed before the babe in the manger. He had a lot of work to do before then, and we're going to cover that. He is the second person of the Godhead eternally existent. Now, The Jehovah Witness take this scripture, if you read their 1950 New World Translation, and they add one little word, it's A, and it's an indefinite article in the English grammar. It doesn't belong there. What they do is in the second verse, in the first verse, he said the word, the Jehovah Witnesses translation say the word was a God. That changes the entire meaning of the text. That means that there's, they believe, almighty God, God the Father, and Jesus is another God. He's a little God. Not quite as good as God the Father. So they're polytheists. They believe in more than one God. In, if you look at some of the Greek uh, scholars, Dr. Barclay, Dr. Manti, these guys are accomplished, respected Greek scholars. They, have, they say that that is the worst translation they've ever seen. They attack Jesus. They destroy Jesus. Although when they come to your house, they'll pretend, oh, we love Jesus. No, you don't. Because you're not being honest about who he is. Isaiah 45 and 46, cover them briefly. In those scriptures, Isaiah 
God says to the prophet, before me there were no other gods. After me there will be no other gods. I am the only God. He says, I am the only Savior. I am the only judge. So, how can Jesus be another God? If he is, he now becomes, by default, a false God. You see the logic? The logos, you know, we're going here? Uh, you can't call Jesus a little God and, and God the Father a big God. They are one. Otherwise, Jesus becomes a false God, according to God's word in Isaiah 45 and 46. What I'd like you to do is take out in your bulletins, I have a wheel. <laughs> I didn't design it, but it's, it's awesome. The Setnars designed it. These people, by their own admission, were in the cult for, I believe, 40 years or more. And they came out, they saw the truth, and they were so upset that they were duped for that long that they started really studying the scriptures. And they came up very brilliantly with this wheel. If you look at the wheel, on the horizon is a dark black line. I know I wrote notes all over it. Uh, above the line is what's said in the New Testament. Below the line is what's said in the Old Testament. So I'll give you an example. All the way to the left on the bottom, in Genesis and Joel, uh, God the Father, or God, is called the judge. If you follow that all the way across to the judge on the right side, on the top of the line, it tells you where Jesus is the judge. And it goes all throughout the bottom. God is the light, God is the creator, God is God, God is the I am, God is the rock, God is the savior. If you look on the top of the wheel, all the corresponding scriptures where Jesus is called those things. Now, I've got news for you. If God calls himself something, I will be very careful not to call myself that because of, of, of respect and reverence for God. Jesus is either taking, he's a great plagiarizer, or he's got delusions of grandeur, or he is one with the Father. So it's the only way you can do it when you start looking at the Scripture. I'm going to read one more point here, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Not the whole sermon, just this part. <laughs> Don't close your Bibles yet. This is the person that I learned Greek from. His name is Bill Mounts. He's a great Greek teacher. And I'm not even going to steal what he said. I'm just going to read it. On page 28 in Basics of Biblical Greek, he says that this is, in fact, one of the most elegantly terse theological statements one could ever find. As Martin Luther said, the lack of an article, the ah, that the Jehovah Witnesses put in, um, um, excuse me, this is, a, this is not, it's not an indefinite article. The lack of an article is against Sabellianism, which makes God or a shapeshifter. He's God one day, he's the son another day, and there's nobody in heaven to answer our prayers. That is not orthodoxy. Okay, that's um, modalist Sabellianists believe that. The word order is against Arianism, which I'll explain. Arianism is a fourth century heresy that the Jehovah Witnesses and the Unitarians have picked up. As a matter of fact, Unitarian is a composite of unity and Arianism. Okay? When all the other bishops were assenting to Christ's deity, the Arianists, there was only a few of them, did not. And this stuff has been carried through over the millennia, unfortunately. So in other words, for those of you who are into Greek, if you said, kai halagas ein hatheos, it would mean that there's an equivalency on both sides of the equation, and God would also be the Son at some times, and the Son would turn into the Holy Spirit but they would be modal. They would, they would be modes. If you said, kai ha theos ein halagas ein theos, that would support Jehovah Witnesses if John had written it that way. The word was a God, but he didn't write it that way. Orthodoxy is kai theos ein halagas, which is the way it's supposed to be. So there you have it. Guys, much smarter than I am. 
and these, they studied this Greek for decades, and John certainly knew what he was writing when he wrote it. Now, just to wrap it up, here's the importance of grammar, punctuation, and sentence structure. I'm going to give you a sentence, and there's five words in the sentence. So you go to your grandmother's house for dinner, and you sit down, and you say, this is good, this is good eating, comma, grandma. Hey, that sounds great. Watch me move the comma with one word before and see how it changes the sentence structure and when the meaning. This is good, comma, eating grandma. <laughs> now, you certainly don't want to make that mistake unless you're the wolf dressed up as a little red riding hood. You see what I'm saying? So, the, the gospel writers knew what they were writing. They knew why they wrote it, and they were inspired of the Holy Spirit. So that gets the whole intellectual part of the segment. What is John telling us right off the bat? He's telling us that Jesus is God. Now, if I could take, I'm going to break this up into six. In my mind, I thought of little, little vignettes or little scenes of a play. So this is the first scene, in a sense, and the first scene is the deity of Christ. This is the foundation, because nothing else makes sense in this book Nothing, unless we understand the foundation that Jesus is deity. Okay, that's what we're going to start with. We need to know who we're dealing with. There's a lot of things out there about Jesus. He wasn't just some sage or some uh, good and wise moral teacher. That's not who we're dealing with. Be prepared today to have your whole life changed. Be prepared to go from a natural experience to a supernatural experience. Those that don't believe in the deity of Christ can never have a supernatural true experience that's not contrived by emotions because they're not worshiping the true God. Okay? Otherwise, it's just a pretense. It's a show, and it's manufactured. The mind is very powerful. Get ready to meet and understand your God and your Savior in this John study today. I'm going to leave you with another scripture before we move on. And that's in Hebrews 1. This is a very good scripture to counteract the cults, especially the cult explosion in the last 200 years. Hebrews 1, uh, verse 1, says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So that's where we're going with this. Sometimes occultists will come up to me and say, well, uh, my 14-year-old prophet, you know, 200 years ago who started this religion said this. And I would say, you need to read Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Because he hasn't spoken through your, to your 14-year-old prophet. He's spoken through his son. And that's the word that we're supposed to have for today. You've got to be careful of some that say God only speaks to our group. God doesn't only speak to Calvary Chapel. There's a lot of good churches out there. And there's a lot of good Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit that belong to other denominations. Be careful of the cults. Verse 3 in John 1. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So the second scene is... Christ's pre-incarnate work. What did he do before he was the babe in the manger? As a matter of fact, he was very busy before he got to earth and was that baby in the manger. Colossians 1, 16 says that, For by him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, 
and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Some say there's a heresy that, say, that says in, during creation, God created Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. God has always existed. He's been eternally existent. He didn't create himself. Okay? It also says, in him all things consist. That word in Greek is sunastao, literally means held together. Now, if you look at the molecular structure, if you look at the atom, and you look at the strong nuclear force inside of an atom, you say, how does that stuff get held together? How do those protons not repel each other? Scientists say, well, we don't know. It's just called a strong nuclear force. <laughs> so we put a label on it, but we really don't know how it happens. God holds everything in his hands. The Bible says that one day everything will be luo, it will be loosed. And you know that if there's a, um, a fission reaction, that that atom can create incredible heat and energy. Uh, so God will create a new heavens and a new earth, but he will release some of those, uh, those structures. There's a lot of science in the Bible. I could do this all day long, <laughs> you know? This is good stuff. Genesis 1.1 said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pastor Mike is actually going through Genesis on Wednesday nights. It's a great study. You know that when it says God, the word is, a, is the Hebrew Elohim, which is a plural. So right in the, right in the first verse of, of Genesis, God is saying something about himself. He's revealing himself to us. Elohim. He is, a, uh, he is three in one. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, that's really not strange because if you think about it, we are comprised of mind, body, and spirit. And sometimes they kind of work against each other, Right? So is there really nothing unusual about God being Father, Son, Holy Spirit? He kind of made us in his image, the Bible says. So we have different components to us, but we're one being. So it's not too hard to understand. Now in Deuteronomy 6, um, Moses speaks about God and he calls him one. And a Jewish person, if you're witnessing to, they may say, aha, God is one, right? But the word is echad in Hebrew, not yokhid. And echad means a compound unity. So we see all through the scripture, I really got to hammer home why we believe God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but he's one God. So you start to see all these, um, these evidences pop up in the scripture. Verse 4, the Bible tells us that God is light. The Bible tells us that Christ is the light of the world, but the world metaphorically is in spiritual darkness. However, God came to bring two things. Number one, eternal life, reconcile his fallen creation back to him. And number two, to bring an understanding of spiritual things to the world. Now, I'll give you an example. The darkness is scattered by the light. It doesn't work in two directions. It only works in one. No one has created a a dark flashlight. You could walk into a bright room, turn it on, everything gets dark. It just doesn't happen because uh, darkness is the absence of light. So if you take a flashlight in a dark room and turn it on, and it's really powerful, or you turn the lights on, all of a sudden the dark, where'd it go? It disappeared. So the light scatters the darkness. Metaphors are used, uh, spiritual metaphors, and of course this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so they're very powerful. Now, in the observable universe, Light scatters darkness. And also in the spiritual realm, without God's truths, the world plummets into spiritual darkness. Now, we can see that even in our own nation. Over the years, over the decades, 
that the courts have become increasingly antagonistic to, well, actually, they're actually teaching some Islam in some schools, but God forbid you talk about Jesus during Christmas time or Easter or the resurrection. So we're starting to see that the truth of spiritual things uh, over the decades has been pulled away. The courts have ruled against it. School boards have ruled against it. And the, the, you know, even in the prisons. So what's happening is the world is continue, continually. You read the paper all the time and you read about these crimes and you say, how could a mother do that to her children? How could a husband do that to his wife? It's getting worse because the courts are pulling away from the truth, the things of God, from mankind, and we're plummeting into darkness. So we can see that happen. Verse 5. It says that the darkness did not comprehend the light. Didn't comprehend. Other synonyms to be apprehend, to seize, or possess. And I'm going to come back to that. Now let's go back to the pre-incarnate work of Christ. Many Christians don't know that Jesus Christ had a major role in creation. You might be hearing some of this for the first time. Wow, really? All these things were made through Jesus? And they were made for him? And this was in the beginning? Yes. Yes. It's all being revealed. Uh, Many Christians don't know about Christophanies, about appearances of what we believe is the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. When it says the angel of the Lord, Malak could be be, uh, explained as a messenger. So when we start looking at these events and seeing the power of some of these pre-existent forms, we say, wow, that that looks like a Christophany or Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. So really, he, he was doing a lot of work before he came to earth as the babe in the manger. Now, the truth is this, that Jesus has a tremendous role in the Godhead. The truth is also this, that Jesus Christ could have a major role in our lives if we allow him to. The question is, are we allowing him? Are we holding Jesus Christ to some menial position in our lives? Are we just saying, you know, Jesus, I'm busy this week. I'll see you at church on Sunday, you know? When we start reading the Bible, I'm, I'm good with you again. I'm praise the Lord, you know, the lingo, it's all good. But during the week, nah, I'm just, I'm busy. I got to do this my own way. No one's, you know, and this is what happens. Are we allowing Christ to come into every part of our homes, every part of our lives? Are we keeping dark corners, dark closets? Are we saying we have little signs on the doors of our heart that say, keep out, Jesus, not this room? Are we in the basements blackening the windows so the light can't shine in? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. Yes, the world is doing it, but sometimes as believers, we have a limited relationship with the Lord because that's what we're allowing. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. We're quenching the Holy Spirit. The Bible wouldn't say don't do that if we couldn't do that. So we have the ability to do that. So I I just hope that this is also cathartic for us. I hope it's releasing for us. I hope that by the end of the day, we just pray and talk to God and just ask him you know, to, to be more evident in our lives, and we're going to allow that. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So the third scene is the messenger, the herald the heralder or the forerunner, John the Baptist, why? He needed to prepare the people for this foreign concept that was coming. Everybody get ready. Be prepared to meet your God. This is the concept, that God came down from heaven to become man 
to save man. It took a little while for them to get it because they were so used to each other and the darkness. And, you know, they, they needed, the Lord needed a forerunner to come in and start preparing, start plowing their hearts to breaking up the fallow ground. This concept of God coming out of his heavenly abode, which he rightly deserves to, uh, to uh, reside in, come down to the earth, interject himself into creation, and to die a sacrificial death for us. Pretty impressive. Makes me feel loved. I don't know about you, but uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, Luke 1, 15. Two quick verses, or three, about John the Baptist. It said, He will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That was uncommon in this time period. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Hard hearts. John the Baptist experienced it. Not only did he experience it, they imprisoned him and they killed him. They cut his head off. Because all he was doing was saying, hey, prepare to meet your God, he loves you. But you got to, you know, the whole sinning thing and, and the adultery and all the things you guys, the murder, you, you got to stop doing that. The thievery. So what did they do? They killed him. Cut his head off. Is it any different today? If there was a John the Baptist, well, I'll tell you why. In the book of Revelation, we hear about the witnesses that come, uh, these, these men, they can't be killed and they start preaching the gospel and such. We, we covered this in the Revelation study and the world, they want to kill them so bad, but God protects them. And then when their mission is up, they end up killing them. And they rejoice and they give gifts of slaughtering these two prophets of God. So do we think that in the United States, we're very civilized here. Do we think that if it didn't happen here, they would meet with the same fate? Oh, they sure would. There's a lot of hard hearts in this country. We've got technology. We've got bioscience. We, you know, we don't need the Lord. We have our savings accounts. So I think that the same thing would happen. Luke seven twenty eight about John as well. Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, which pretty much includes every, all, all males, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So the importance of John speaks to the importance of Christ. So you're telling me Elijah and Elisha and you know, Isaiah and all these awesome prophets, John's better than all of them? Yeah, why? Because of his mission. Because he came to herald the Messiah and the Savior of the world. That's why he was so important, because the one he was talking about was most important. He says, I came, or basically he's to bear witness of that light, of course, which is Jesus. And if John could paraphrase it, he might say, yes, I was conceived supernaturally. I was ministered to by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. I was not, uh, I never compromised. I wasn't moved by men. I'm a product of that light, but let me make it perfectly clear. I'm not the light. And he had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He had to be away from society because once he got into society, they may say, hey, John, why the tough talk? You know, why don't you take it down a few notches? We'll give you a nice place to stay, maybe one of Herod's palaces. John wouldn't hear it. He wouldn't compromise because he had something important to do. Now, even some today, I've heard uh, preachers, evangelists, oh, I'm the mini messiah. Or I'm the, and you know, guys, be careful with that stuff. I would, you know, don't, don't take any of God's glory for yourself. Uh, but that's happening. That's what's happening. 
And then I would ask the question about this. John came to prepare. Are you prepared? Is your heart prepared today for what you're going to receive? As you start learning about your Savior, are you going to take all those speed bumps that slow, slow things down, you know, all those, those trip wires? Are you going to take them away from your heart so God could come in and minister to you? Whatever he needs to show you, will you allow him 100% to show you through his word and through his ministering to by the Holy Spirit? Because the whole truth is coming through this book. Verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The fourth scene, the rejection of Christ. So the world made him, I'm sorry, the world was made by him, but the world neither knew him or received him. How unusual. How unusual. A bizarre truth. As the true light. Jesus gave life to all creation, and the world said, crucify him, put him to death, put him to death. Well, we can read in, in Second Chronicles as well that um, the, the Jewish writer himself said, you know, every time we had a prophet come, our people killed him. I mean, I'm paraphrasing it. It was a few paragraphs long, but every time God sent a prophet, they would be killed by the people for the most part, especially the religious leaders, right? He's spoiling our kingdoms. He's spoiling our empires. We had religions set up. You mean we built these great temples and we worshipped and we had this system? Now he's going to come and tell us that we can't do this? Check this out. Religion. Man is trying to get to God. Well, God, I want to get to you this way. I really don't care that that's the way you want to get to me, but I want to get to you this way. Imagine the hubris of mankind. But that's what we see. Now, in an earthly analogy, we can say this, that... Mom can give birth to children. And we read in the paper every once in a while, mom could take care of those children, mom could care for those children. That children uh, grows up to be an adult and he kills his mom. Right? Do we not read that in the paper? You say, how can that be? You know, where's the respect? Where's the, the gratitude for that person being given life? But these things happen. Let's look at this again. The true light. Now that's a curious statement because in the natural realm, isn't light light? Well, you tell me. Do some of you, when you uh, sit into a room and there's fluorescence for too long, you get migraines? Some of you, uh, when you look at certain type of light sources, kind of makes you feel a little foggy. However, when you go out on a beautiful 75-degree day and the sun is out, it's beautiful, isn't it? And then when the sun goes down, the pineal gland senses that and squirts melatonin into your body and helps you sleep a good night's sleep. That's the way it's supposed to happen. But... Man-made light can be very damaging to a person. Man-made light can cause problems, but true light in the natural realm has a perfect electromagnetic spectrum profile that's conducive to human health. So light isn't all light. What about spiritually? Why does he say the true light? Because there's fake ones. Now, I know, my wife and I know someone who's close to us at, that is into uh, reincarnation, they're into karma, they're into Eastern religions. And this person is basically an angry person. But the desire, his desire is to find this peace. But the peace is very elusive. Because the more he tries to control himself and he comes in contact with people, and they do things he doesn't like, he gets angry again. Now here's the rub. In his religion, his concern is if he doesn't get it right, 
and he doesn't achieve this, this Zen or this Nirvana, he may come back in the next life as a beetle. I kid you not. Who wants to, I don't want to come back as a beetle. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and then this cycle keeps happening with these lives until he finally gets it right. But here's the, here's the deal. It's, that's, that's a false light. It has the appearance of light. It has the appearance of, of good. All of us in this group, we all wear white robes and we sit on our navels and we have peace. There is no peace there. That's not true peace. The only peace comes from God. So there's true light and there's false light. So the true light is very important. Now it says that the world knew him not. It received him not. We can see this in the parables. Uh, Matthew 21, the parable of the landowner, where they rejected him. We can see in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, where he was rejected. We can see this in Luke 19, in the parable of the minas. We will not have this man reign over us, but he is the king. So, and I can go on and on, in the parables, God is saying to his people, you're, you're constantly rejecting me, okay? Make no mistake, we cannot have a false idea and a false understanding of Jesus. And I saw a sign, and I, listen, I know it sounds like I'm kind of getting on other places, but I, you, know, you don't need to go to a place where you're not going to be taught the truth. It's a waste of time. If you're stuck in a cult for 10 or 20 years, and then you find the truth, I, it, actually it's a psychological process, and I, I've had some come to me, and they go through this grieving process. They're angry, they're bitter, they're sad, because they've been ripped off for so many years. You need to find the truth, and the truth is found in God's word. There's a sign of a church uh, in the East Brunswick area, and the sign says, we're open to other beliefs, yours. Now, I've got news for you. (laughs) So some of you have seen the sign. (laughs) When I was drinking too much, and I was partying too much, and I was doing the things that I shouldn't be doing, and I walked into a Calvary Chapel for the first time, the last thing that I wanted the pastor to tell me is, your concept of God, party on, man, it works. And they believe in that, and they believe in, that's stupid. I wanted to know the truth. I wanted somebody to confront me and tell me, this is wrong. I knew it was wrong. God was working on me. I needed it to be confirmed. I didn't need to worship the God of Joe anymore. It wasn't getting me anywhere. You see what I'm saying? And that's what we do. We worship our own God. We make, instead of him creating us in his image, we create him in our image because it works for us. No such thing as smorgasbord religion. It doesn't work in spiritual matters. Here's the deal. If you work for the aeronautics injury, or the aeronautics industry or the engineering industry, and there's a bunch of scientists together, and they got their calculus, and they got their computers, and they got everything, and they're building the motors, and the and there's this, the drag and the coefficient of friction on the, on the body style, and you come in and you say, hey, listen, your truth, my truth, let's build it like this. Who cares about the numbers? Let's just build something pretty. They're going to fire you. So why do we accept it in spiritual matters? Because that is what lasts for eternity. So, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the fifth scene is hope. Hope. Not everyone's going to reject him. Of course, um, when we get to heaven, there might be trillions or quadrillions of souls in there. I don't know. Heaven's certainly big enough. So many will come to faith in 
Christ as their Savior. Now, before we read, we continue, let me just uh, run over to, to Luke 16, 16. It's one verse. And it says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. So there's the good news. John did his job. He, he died an untimely death. He lost his life. Christ came. He died. You know, he was crucified on the cross. But what they did made a big difference in people's lives. And like I said, the numbers are probably incomprehensible of how many souls the Lord will have in his kingdom. They received, they seized, they lay hold of, they, they, they've been pressing into heaven. They were still alive, but they were be, they'd be becoming born again. They would become children of, of God at this point. So, And how do we do it? By believing in his name. The first step is believing. Yes, I do believe that God had sent his son into the world. Yes, I do believe that he uh, was born a virgin birth, that he lived a sinless life, and that he died for my sins. Yes, I believe in those. That's all you need, Pastor Joe? Absolutely. That's the first step. And then we get to walk with him. And then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. A part of God literally resides in us. I mean, how do you get a better deal than that? There is no deal on earth that remotely compares to what God gives. Good gifts he gives to men, the Bible tells us. Verse 13. Make no mistake, though, we don't become children of God by the following, not of blood. Now, in this world, if you're fortunate enough in some countries and you're born into royalty, you're a baby, you know? You have royal blood in you. You grow up and you've got, you've got the whole country. Wow! Where others may be born into abject poverty. Man, that's not really fair, is it? No. That's why God's system is different. It's not through blood. It's not through royalty. It's not through bloodlines. It's, um, it's not because my parents are saved, so I'm saved. You know, our children have to have their own faith. That should be our prayer. Blood isn't thicker than water in God's economy. Two, it's not by the will of the flesh. We can't earn salvation. It's not an ability. It doesn't come naturally. We can't work for salvation. And three, not by the will of man. Mankind in general, the Tower of Babel. We'll get to God on our own way. We'll build these ziggurats that just keep going higher and higher. And you can still find some of them in the, in the Middle Eastern areas. Uh, but that didn't work either. Uh, there's multiple uh, instances of wishful thinking religions out there. But they're just wishful thinking. It's not going to be by the will of man. It's going to be by God. So by the will of God means that it's his love, his effort, his plan, his sacrifice for us, and the Bible says that he draws us unto salvation. Again, you walked into this. Let me tell you something. I don't say this every Sunday, but this is the message. If you come in here and you don't know much about the Scripture, boy, if God is not pounding on that door saying, let me in, please, I love you. Let me come in and dine with you. Me and my son, we'll make our home with you and we'll dine with you. He says that in Revelation. It's personal. It's personal. I look out and I see a sea of faces, but some of you in your minds have to be saying to yourself, wow, could God really be reaching me? How did I walk into this place? How did the circumstances happen that I'm here? And I'm hearing this. And this isn't everywhere in the scripture, but don't waste it. You know, respond to that. Now, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace, that's a great word. even sounds nice, doesn't it? Grace, it's a nice word. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I believe and God showers me with his grace. Not of yourselves. Oh, I didn't earn it. It wasn't because I'm wonderful. It's not of 
of myself. It is the gift of God. God gave it freely, not of works. I don't work myself to heaven or to earn his, his favor, lest anyone should boast. It is grace, and it is a gift. So what do I get out of this? The right to become a child of God, to become part of God's family. Now, let me just understand, help you understand this concept of grace and gifts and working. If, if I give John a gift, and it's a really expensive gift, and he's working overtime and stuff, and after a few weeks he gives me a check, I'm going to be insulted. It's like, dude, I gave you a gift. It's because I love you. You know, you, you can't earn that gift. You can't pay me back. God gave us a priceless gift. It's an insult to him. When we think we can work for it, we can earn it. Or because we're wonderful that we should just get it. It doesn't work like that. And I want to ask you today, will you be one of the eternally fortunate today by the end of the service that you'll receive that gift of salvation? 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So the sixth and final scene for today, and we'll cover the remainder of the chapter next Sunday, or in a few Sundays, the incarnation of Christ embodying the grace of God, the love of God. Verse 14, it said, He dwelt among us. If you try to understand the whole concept of why did Jesus have to become a man? How many of you have watched uh, Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer? <laughs> it's interesting. This guy is really has this knack for animals. And you, he goes to anybody's house. The dog could be vicious. The dog could be like, possessed by the devil. And, and you know, after a while, Caesar Milan gets the dog to you know, be submissive and all that kind of stuff. Maybe we should have him come to our house because our dog's a little bit difficult. <laughs> but, you know, after watching it a few times, one thing he says is, or I just paraphrase, that he can't necessarily do it himself. What he does is he has other dogs that are trained. He's got four or five other dogs, and this is amazing. He has the dogs go up to the, the unruly dog and minister to them. He does. He uses other dogs to get their attention and make them feel safe. Okay, it's not a great analogy. But God loves us, man. I mean, he would do, just think about that. I would not, I wouldn't want to become a dog to reach other dogs. I like being a human. But God left his just awesome nature, his awesome, and he still is. And he became, he took the form of a man. So that means he was tired at times. And that meant he was hungry at times. And when they whipped him and put the nails through his wrists and through his ankles, it hurt. He felt that same pain that we would have felt. And we say, why would he bother? You know, we're messed up. He should have just started all over again. That's how much he loves us. He became a man. He became part of our family to reach us so that we now could become reconciled and be part of his family. You know, he just, he's got it all under control. It's good stuff. Now, he, he says, we beheld his glory. The disciple John literally beheld his glory. He touched Jesus. He heard his, his voice patterns. You know, he, if, if Christ called him from afar off, he knew, that's the Lord. Well, we get into John 21. So, I mean, just imagine, he's, he's trying to put this on paper. 
But he, he beheld the, the glory of Christ in the form of a man. That must have been great. One more thing. And, and I have to reach those who are just coming here and have never read the Bible before. I also have to reach those. We have some pastors that sit in as well. And I have to reach the high highs as well in their intellectual understanding. It says, the only begotten of the Father. The word is monogenes in the Greek. And some translate it as only begotten, which it could be translated. Contextually, depending on where the, the uh, scripture is, it could be translated other ways. The actual phrase is monogenus para patros. Now, monogenes in its form without being conjugated uh, can also mean incomparable or unique. And para can mean with. So we can also look at this as, well, I don't get it. You know, did God have, was it God and Mother Nature and they made Son Jesus? No. It's not like our system that he created. He's not that way. But it was that he was a son, he's a son in relationship. And he's incomparable with the Father. So in other words, the uniqueness of God is also the uniqueness of Christ. He is just as much God as God the Father is, and the Holy Spirit is. So we, we need to understand that as well. Now in verse 15, he says, John says about Jesus that he comes after me but was preferred before me. In other words, John was born six months prior to Jesus. And John's ministry from the wilderness was out there in the open, and then Jesus came to be baptized him by him. So John in, initially, in a time frame, came first, but Jesus was preferred before him, or he's existed before him as well. Not only was he eternally existent prior to John, but his, his mission was far more important than his. So understand that. Verse 16, last, uh, okay, 16 through 18. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared. So the law of Moses, what did it do? Well, um, before we're born again, if we start reading some of these laws, we don't get far before we say, I'm done, I'm toast. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't keep a quarter of these. So we see the law of Moses, and it reveals our hopeless condition as men and women. We can't attain God. Can't do it. You can build all the ziggurats you want. It's not going to work. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, the truth of the hopeless situation, but also the truth of the grace that God gave through Jesus Christ for the solution. So we, get the, we understand the hopelessness, but we also understand the solution. And his fullness, we receive grace for grace. The, the, the grace didn't end at the cross. The grace doesn't end. Again, some believers are like, oh, I just can't wait to get to heaven. Jesus said, I have come to give them life and that more abundantly. He doesn't want us to be miserable here and just have a death wish. He has come to give us blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And as a pastor, I can tell you, when I hear the individual stories of the things that God is doing in this church, it's grace upon grace for me. When you serve and when you take of your time to serve the Lord, although it is a sacrifice of time, you'd be surprised that you receive grace, you receive fulfillment of knowing that you're doing something in concert with the Lord. Verse 18, he says, No one has seen God. Moses and Elijah had very similar experiences, and they saw a very scaled-down portion of God's glory. So if you read those different passages, Moses and Elijah saw some pretty amazing things that God showed them. But... He says, no one can see me face to face and live. No one can see my full glory and live in our state. 
Now, there will be a time where we will see him in his full glory for eternity, but we'll also shed these bodies of sin and death. So that's going to be neat. But Jesus is in the Father's bosom. So in contrast to Moses and Elijah, there's a spiritual intimacy between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says the Father has declared Jesus. There's no other way to salvation. Hear him. The transfiguration, uh, Peter and James and John, they were scrambling. You know, Jesus was revealed and he was like the whitest white linen they had ever seen. And they were scared and they were starting to build tabernacles. and And God the Father from heaven said, hear him. Stop it. Just stop and hear my son. I have declared him. God wants the light of his word to pierce our heart. And if right now, or during the service, some of you are wrestling with this a major decision about following him or not, it's because the Lord is working. I could sit up here, or I could stand up here and read Shakespeare. You might be moved a little bit emotionally, but you won't be moved to make a decision. When God's word is preached to you, it will cause a lot of conflicting thoughts in your mind. If you're not saved, you're, you, 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 know, you're gonna, you may wrestle with some of those thoughts, but give in to God. Don't worry about what your friends will think or your peers or your coworkers. Just let it, let it happen. The title of this message is First Things First. So before we get deep into this book, John wants us to understand who we're dealing with, who is Christ. Because if you ask 100 people on the street, you may get 80 different ideas of who Jesus is. Actually, you can go into some churches that maybe it's not Bible-believing. You'll still get 80 different ideas because they don't understand fully who Christ is. Now, I'll tell you this. I've lived on both sides, and I understand who Jesus is and why he is. And uh, I don't, I, at this point, I'm, just, I'm completely convinced. So we're dealing with a living God who wants to be preeminent in our, in our lives. Can you accept that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your Lord.